sure is good to be here this morning to look out and see all who come to honor the God of heaven and worship him and remember his son. As we mentioned earlier, we do have visitors with us. We're so thankful that you're here to enjoy this time and to lift up your heart to the God of heaven. Stick around after services, if you will, and let us get to know you a little bit. We just sang a song. I had thought yesterday I might call whoever the song leader was. I didn't check. And uh, ask them to sing A Mighty Fortress. So David must have gotten the message without me sending it. I appreciate that. Um, because it does have to do with the topic of our lesson today. The devil's devices. A mighty fortress is our God. A bulwark never failing. A shelter amid the flood of mortal ill prevailing. Because our ancient foe still seeks to work us woe. His craft and power are great and filled with cruel hate on earth is not as equal. We just sang those words. And that's what we're concerned about this morning, the devices of the devil. For in 2 Corinthians chapter 2 and verse 11, the Apostle Paul, in a context that we'll look at a little bit more in detail later, warns us, to beware lest Satan should take advantage of us, for we are not ignorant of his devices. Let's not get lazy and apathetic and unwatchful when it comes to what Satan is trying to do in our lives. There was a boy a few years back named Jack Handy, and when he, as a boy, went to school, he was confronted day by day by a bully who demanded his lunch money. This happened day after day after day. Since Jack Handy was smaller than the bully, he gave him his lunch money every day and I guess went hungry. It's an old story. This one's a true one. Well, one day he just had enough. He decided he was going to fight back. But he was too small really to fight the guy. So he decided what he would do is take karate lessons. And he did sign up for karate lessons. The karate instructor was charging him $5 a lesson. After a while, Jack Handy decided it was a lot cheaper to pay the bully than to pay the karate instructor. So that's what he did. He paid the bully. That's what a lot of people do. The devil is a bully. He's been uh, knocking us around pretty good. But he's not going to have his way. Because God is with us. And God is strong. And God helps us in so many different ways. The Bible calls the devil a lion. 1 Peter chapter 5 and verse 8. He is our adversary. He's our adversary, the devil, who walks about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. You may have heard that lions are the king of the jungle. And I suppose I probably believed that when I was a boy. Having been to Africa, I can tell you that lions are definitely not the king of the jungle. And you might put the crown on the elephant if you're looking for another mammal, but really, people are the kings of the jungle. Be that as it may, 
The lion is the bully of the jungle. Just pushing other species around, uh, killing cubs of competitive cats, all sorts of things. The lion is the bully of the jungle. And so it's a good figure of speech to describe the devil. Trying to bully us around. Many Christians are like that boy Jack Handy, as we've said. I think it's easier to compromise than to pay the bully. And pay the bully, rather, than to try to defeat him. That's because maybe we don't know, maybe we haven't realized what 1 John 4 and verse 4 says, that he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. However bad and mean and big the bully is, and he is bad and mean and big, yet the one who is in you, if you're a Christian, is greater than Satan. I'll talk for just a couple of minutes about the reality and the personality of the devil. The devil is certainly real. He's depicted as real from Genesis 3 all the way to Revelation 22. He is absolutely real. Jesus uses personal pronouns to talk about him. He warns Simon Peter in Luke 22 and verse 31 that Satan has asked for you, that he may sift you as wheat. Satan was a real individual, and he was seeking to destroy Simon Peter. The devil is real. He's a person who is just as real as God. He's not, as we've said already, not as powerful as God, but he's just as real. One preacher said one time that he knows that the devil is real, that he's a real being, for two reasons. First of all, the Bible says so. And secondly, because he's had business with him. And I might say, we have too. If you can't see the devil working in your life, you're not looking very hard. Because he surely is. According to the Bible... The devil is a created, personal, spiritual being. But just because we can't see him doesn't mean he's not real. The air about us in here this morning is filled with uh, voices and musical sounds and information that none of us can see at the moment unless we happen to be looking at our phones. Right? Because... You think about, in, in some way, shape, or form, there are, in our airwaves, all of this information all the time. It might be sent out over a broadcast tower or uh, you know, a phone tower or the Wi-Fi in here, but all of that is in the air. Is it real? Well, you wouldn't know it unless you had some digital device that processes it, right? It's invisible to us. So is the devil. But he's in this room right now. Right now. You can count on him. And he's doing what he does. We'll talk about that more in a minute. Right now. Just like all those digital signals in the air around us. Spiritual beings are real. They're powerful. And a whole lot of them are really evil. We don't understand all there is to know about the devil. I freely admit that, and this isn't really a sermon about all there is to know about the devil. But there's some interesting aspects to him that the Bible describes. In Revelation 2 and verse 9, we learn that he has a synagogue. There are those who thought that they were children of God, that they were Jews, but they're really a synagogue of Satan. 
Jesus says, Revelation 2 and verse 9. So there, there are people who gather together sometimes in the name of religion and sometimes in the name of good who actually do a whole lot of evil. There's a whole lot of that going around. People who the devil has deceived who are working not for God's righteousness but for the ways of the world, for postmodern thinking, for the latest you know, societal craze. Synagogues of Satan. Groups of people that are working for him because they've been deceived by him. Jesus, uh, Paul says in, in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 14 and 15, that Satan has his own ministers. Satan himself transforms himself into an angel of light. He's deceptive. But he has his own ministers who do his bidding, who do his work. They're walking among us. They're deceiving people with false doctrine. They're deceiving people with temptation to sexual immorality or lying or political falsehood or whatever it might be. Saving people with the latest conspiracy theory. You name it. He's got lots of ministers. He has his own doctrines. 1 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 1. Paul warns Timothy about the doctrines of demons. Satan has a lot of stuff that he teaches. And he even has his own communion service. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Uh, rather it's chapter 10 verses 20 and 21 Apostle Paul writes about things sacrificed to idols that are sacrificed to demons and he says in that context I do not want you to have fellowship the word there is communion with demons indicating that if we are going to give ourselves over to idolatry whether that is an actual idol or the love of money, which is also idolatry, materialism, which is also idolatry, or putting anything in our lives above the God of heaven, all of that's idolatry. We're having communion with the devil. Here's Satan. Real, subtle, affecting us in so many ways that we seldom stop to think about. And he is a clever warrior. Back there in 2 Corinthians chapter 2 and verse 11, where we started out a moment ago, Paul warned us not to let Satan take advantage of us and not to be ignorant of his devices. The word devices or designs there is, um, the Greek word is noema, but it, it means the thoughts the, the process and the evil purposes. I want you to know this morning, God wants you to know, Paul wants you to know, that the devil is thinking. And he's thinking about you. And he has schemes and plots and things that he's, traps that he's setting for you. We know all of this because he's a roaring lion. And he's trying to catch his lunch. And he just loves to eat you alive. And so like a lion, he plans his attack. And he's clever and he's stealthy and he hides in the grass. And jumps on you unsuspectingly. Timothy, in 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 26 was told to teach in such a way that his listeners might escape 
the snare of the devil. A snare is the trap that you set for someone. In Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 11, we're told to put on the whole armor of God that we might be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. The word wiles there is sometimes translated tactics or schemes or strategies. A strategy is a carefully arranged plan to accomplish something. See, the devil's primary work is deception. And thus, the words wiles and tactics and schemes and strategies are all appropriate for what he's doing. I want to talk about the devices of the devil. There are five devices of the devil that are specifically named in Scripture that we're going to look at this morning. Each of these has relevance in our lives today. There, if we went around and just asked everybody in this room, each one of you would say, I have fallen trapped to at least one of these. They are serious. They need to be watched for and guarded against. Satan lies and blinds us to the truth. This tactic is old as old as the Garden of Eden. Jesus said about the devil in John 8 and verse 44 that he was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth. There is no truth in him. When he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own resources. He's a liar and the father of it. We go back to Genesis 3 and we see him giving birth to lying. He comes to the woman. He's more cunning in the form of a serpent than any beast of the field, which the Lord God had made. And he says to the woman, Has God indeed said, You shall not eat of every tree of the garden? Genesis 3 and verse 1. And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, You shall not eat it, nor shall you touch it, lest you die. And the serpent said, And the serpent said, You shall not surely die. Exactly the opposite of what God said. And he gave reason for it. God really doesn't want the best for you. He really doesn't. You want the best for you. I'm trying to help you see that you want the best for you. And you deserve the best for you. God knows. God knows that in the day you eat of it, you'll be like him, knowing good from evil. He doesn't want you to have that privilege. He doesn't want you to be like Him. What a lie. God created us like Him. He wants us to be like Him eternally. And Satan turned all of that upside down on its head as he does every day, even still today. Essentially the same lie at every moment in our lives. God doesn't want you to have what you want. I want you to have what you want, He's saying to us. You deserve it. God's trying to hold you back. God's trying to limit your, lo- your, your enjoyment. He's trying to, to limit your joy. And your happiness. He's trying to steal it from you. So, God's truth revealed in His Word, the Bible, is questioned by Satan. And whenever a person tries to question or argue away any teaching of the Bible, we can be sure that's the old serpent who's got to him. 
trying to deceive that individual. Satan twists the truth. He blinds us to what's real and right. And any attempt to play down the scriptures, to twist what they say, to turn them on their head, is an attempt to try to dishonor the God of heaven. Paul will write in 2 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 4 that the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers. Blinded them. Can, can you imagine, here, here's a world of people, so many people in this world today, who believe that everything came out of nothing for no reason, with no power behind it, with no purpose at all, that good and evil as divine constructs don't exist, that life came from non-life, life came from non-life, and developed into all that we have in this world today. People believe that. And they call us blinded by faith. And they're blinded by, what do you call that? The devil. I read this last week. Stephen Hawking. In a book called The Grand Design. Stephen Hawking was a famous, used to be atheist. He's not an atheist anymore because he's passed away. But um, wrote this book called The Grand Design. I think about just the title of that. The irony. The irony of the grand design. Design demands a designer. Design doesn't just happen. And yet, there are a world full of people who deny that very simple, plain truth. The God of this world has blinded. And He does so, so subtly. Often, often invading the very language that we use. We were concerned 20, 30 years ago about what was called politically correct language, where you know certain language couldn't be said because it was too blunt or was offensive or whatever, and so we're changing this to that, using different kinds of words. But that, that is really, that's nothing all that new. It didn't start 20 or 30 years ago. It started probably in the Garden of Eden and has gone on to right now. Satan tries to get us to call things not what they are, but what makes them seem palatable. And so pride is now self-esteem. And materialism is the good life. And disobedience is just a shortcoming. And sins have just become mistakes. In 1859, the American Medical Association labeled abortion, and I quote, wanton and murderous destruction. In 1967, they described abortion, the American Medical Association, as the interruption of an unwanted pregnancy. change in the meaning of a word over a hundred years' time changes societal understanding of the truth. Who do you think is behind that? Now, I'm not, that's one example. There are thousands of examples like this, and they're going on all the time. And Satan is getting to us, whether we realize it or not, redefining terminology, redefining reality and truth. Virtues, he has turned into vices, and vices into virtues. 
Tolerance now means supporting and encouraging that which is evil. That's what we're being told to do, is to be tolerant, right? But it doesn't really mean to be tolerant anymore. It means to support, encourage that which is evil. Love means never pointing out error, never telling somebody they're in the wrong. Peace is to be gained by the sacrifice of one's own conscience and every moral principle. Money is to be gained at the forfeiture of truth and righteousness and honesty. Satan lies and blinds us to the truth. Satan puts evil suggestions into our minds. I don't believe that Satan has control of our minds, or probably not even direct access into our minds. But he has a way of manipulating things to tempt us to think in certain ways. He is always on the alert. He's looking for weak places in our defense systems, and he's eager to take advantage of any opening that we might give him whether it's some lust that we have, a lack of true self-esteem, feeling that we need something that's not being provided for us, all sorts of things. The Bible speaks of the betrayal of Jesus just before his crucifixion. What had the devil been working on Judas about? Well, Judas, we know, was a thief. He obviously loved money. And that may not have been his only motivation, but he goes to the priests and he betrays Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. In John 13, the night that he's betrayed, in verse 2, as the disciples came together that night, Jesus is about to wash their feet, which I'll talk about tonight. The devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot. How did he do that? Lust for money. No longer wanting to be the odd man out among the disciples. I believe that Judas is the only disciple that did not come from Galilee. He came from Kerios, which was a good distance away. His particular culture was not like the other 11. He was different. Lots of things that Satan may have worked on with him. Peter asked Ananias, who lied about how much money he had gotten for a certain piece of land that was then given to the Lord. Why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? Well, what did, what did Ananias and Sapphira want? Well, one of the, the glory of being seen as very, very generous people, but they didn't want to be very, very generous people. That sounds like something Satan might tempt us with today. So they lied. Who put that in his heart? Satan filled his heart. It was Satan who prompted Judas to betray Jesus. It was Satan who motivated Ananias to lie about the donated money. The devil. We must must recognize the devil is ever working in this way. Enticing us to do wrong. Inflaming our passions. Stirring up our appetites. Waking old habits making us feel unloved, dejected, needy. I want you to know, again, we don't have to give in to him. We have been given the power of choice. We have 
choice and control of our own minds. But Satan is the one who seeks to put these thoughts into our hearts and minds. The ultimate aim of the devil is to mar us, to scar us, and to disfigure us so that the image of God is no longer recognizable in us. That's his aim. He does not love God. He hates him. He hates anybody that looks like God. So it is his goal to mar our very souls. And again, he'll put things in our mind to try to get us to do that. The devices of the devil include promoting an unforgiving spirit among brethren. Go now in your Bibles, if you will, will to 2 Corinthians. I said we'd get back to this text in a little bit. 2 Corinthians now, chapter 2. Jonathan shared some of this with us the other night, but in talking about devices of the devil, obviously you can't uh, look over this text, and especially the specific thing that's being talked about here, which is a prevalent problem among God's people in a way that Satan gets to us. Although Paul says we're not ignorant of his devices, we act like we are sometimes. 2 Corinthians chapter 2. And I agree with Jonathan too, I believe, as he said the other night. Uh, there are others that have different views of this. But in 1 Corinthians, Paul had written uh, to the Corinthians about a, a vile sinner that was among them. It was a part of their group. And it was someone who was committing terrible fornication that was not even named among the Gentiles. He had his father's wife. And, and, and they were happy about it and just allowing him to, you know, commune with them. And Paul had told them in 1 Corinthians 5 to put away that person from among them. They, they needed to withdraw from them. And apparently between 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians, then that was done. And you have the, the uh, consequences of what was done kind of implied in 2 Corinthians chapter 2. So I believe it's that man that Paul is talking about who since then has repented and come to himself and been accepted back by the congregation. <coughs> Paul says in verse 5, If anyone has caused grief, he has not grieved me, but all of you to some extent, not to be too severe. And this punishment, which, is which was inflicted by the majority, is sufficient for such a man. The punishment was the withdrawal of 1 Corinthians 5, I do believe. So that contrary, you ought rather to forgive <coughs> and comfort him, lest perhaps such a one should be swallowed up with too much sorrow. Therefore, I urge you to reaffirm your love for him. For to this end I also wrote, that I might put you to the test, whether you are obedient in all things. Now whom you forgive anything, I also forgive. For if indeed I have forgiven anything, I have forgiven that one for your sakes in the presence of Christ lest Satan should take advantage of us, for we are not ignorant of his devices. What was Satan trying to get the Corinthians to do? Not forgive a man that needed to be forgiven. And Satan tries to get us to do that too. A man who had committed an egregious sin, yet comes back to the Lord, don't let him be swallowed up with sorrow. 
confirm your love for him, comfort him, encourage him. Satan delights in hearing us say unkind and critical things about our brothers and sisters. Things that should long have been forgiven and forgotten. In James chapter 3 and verse 14, James writes, If you have bitter envy and self-seeking in your hearts, do not lie and boast against the truth. This wisdom does not descend from above, but is earthly, sensual, demonic. Where, where does it come from? What's the source of you're not going to forgive somebody, but rather you're going to be bitter about it. You're going to hold a grudge and you talk to somebody and they talk about you know this person who's hurt them or uh, done something bad to them or in, in some way disappointed them and they say, I am bitter about that. Well, Satan's got a hold of you. Bitterness is a sin. you've got to let it go. Now, I understand this isn't a lesson on repentance. Repentance is, is required for forgiveness. There can be no doubt about that. But here the attitude of forgiveness must hold sway in our lives or Satan will surely get us. In Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 32, a passage we quote often on this point, the Apostle Paul says that we're to be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, even as God in Christ forgave you. And of course, God in Christ always demands our repentance. That's part of how that works. But the words that Paul uses here that I want to really look at, the word kind, kindness speaks of generous and thoughtful attitude where you're going to be magnanimous, you're going to be gracious. You're going to be thoughtful. And then the word tender-hearted especially. The word that's translated tender-hearted here means a heartfelt compassion, a, a sympathy, an empathy. It feels for the needs and the circumstances of others. You put yourself in the shoes of another and you give to them what you would want if you were in their shoes. You do unto others as you would have them do to you as Jesus has instructed us. Don't let Satan use this horrible device of grudge-holding and bitterness against you. Because it will surely ruin your soul. Satan tempts believers to commit sexual immorality. You're familiar with 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Paul deals there a lot with marriage problems in marriage, how to handle various aspects. But just in verse 5, he says that married couples should not withhold their bodies from each other except by consent that they may give themselves to fasting and prayer. We looked at that not long ago in a lesson. But at the end of that, he says, the reason is so that Satan does not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Temptation to longingly lust after a person who is not your spouse is a device that's used so often by Satan. And we have, as we've talked many times here, all kinds of problems in our society and temptations that we're faced with to 
smartphones and what's being shown on television and in movies and in all sorts of other ways. That sexual lust is promoted and perverted in our society. We are living in the midst of a tremendous worldwide cultural revolution in which moral principles of purity and goodness, even an understanding of the difference between a man and a woman and the sanctity of marriage, all of those have been swept off the battlefield by feelings and lust. Our society is pleasure-oriented. The mood is permissive. Immodesty is pervasive. Many consider sexual purity a concept that has no more validity in our age. We are reeking with sexual immorality. Reeking with it. And all of that is the work of Satan. Can't you see that's the work of Satan? He has taken something that the Bible describes in Hebrews 13 as holy and good and pure. And has drug it through the mud and presented it to us as the thing that we need. The devices of the devil. Satan incites persecution and tribulation in the lives of Christians. The devil is doing his best to discourage us, if he can't get us anyway, any other way, to discourage the disciples of Jesus by bringing persecution, hardship, tribulation, sickness, mockery to bear upon us. So many different things. In Revelation chapter 2 and verse 10, Jesus says, Fear none of those things that you're about to suffer. Behold, the devil shall cast some of you into prison. It's the devil that brings these things upon God's people. The world doesn't make, want to make it easy on us. And the reason for that is because Satan holds sway over the world. I'm going to share, just real quickly, a few verses that John wrote, some from the Gospel and some from 1 John. In, in John 15 and verse 18, the night that Jesus was betrayed, he's talking to his disciples and he says to them, if the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hated you. Yes, the world hates Jesus. No wonder it hates us. What would we would expect any different? I, I am sometimes shocked <laughs> that Christians are shocked about how Christians are lambasted and mistreated and not given a fair shake in the news media, for instance. Oh, oh that's just shocking that they would you know, not give God's people or God's truth a, a fair shake. Is it really? <laughs> I don't think so. That's of the world. Satan's got sway over that, and the world hates us. Why would we expect a fair shake from the world? Why would we expect our, our, our true points to be heard? Do not marvel, my brethren, if the world hates you. 1 John 13, 13. It's not surprising. 1 John 5 and verse 19. We know that we are of God and the whole world lies under the sway of the wicked one. John 16 and verse 33. 
Jesus said, in the world you will have tribulation. You're going to have all kinds of trouble in the world over which Satan holds sway because it hates you like it hates me. In the world you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. Jesus has overcome the world. And then again in 1 John 4 and verse 4. You are of God, little children, and have overcome them because he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. I might say to you that as powerful and mean and conniving as Satan is, Jesus is ever more abundantly powerful, good, great, kind, merciful, and ultimately victorious. That's our Jesus. What Satan cannot buy, what he will flee from, and what you must do to resist him. Bottom line, how do we resist all this? Well, awareness of what Satan is trying to do. That's what we tried this for. God's intel on Satan's secret plan. We've been given that this morning. That's these scriptures. But what, what, do, what do you do besides just knowing what Satan's trying to try? What do you do to combat this? What do you do to get Satan to go the other way and you have, uh, have, have a real relationship with God? The Bible gives us the answer. James chapter 4, verses 7 and 8. Submit to God. Submit to God. Submit to God. Do what God says do. Think what God says think. Submit to God. Number one. Number two, resist the devil. You see all this stuff he's trying to do we've talked about this morning? Get you to not forgive. Test you with sexual temptation. All these things we've talked about. Resist that. Fight against it. Draw near to God. In your thoughts, in your life, things you do day by day, are you drawing near to God or are you cavorting with the world? Are you spending your mind time with your mind on worldly things or on spiritual things, the things of God or the things of Satan. Draw near to God, and He will draw near to you. And then, here you go. Cleanse your hands. Your hands are the things that you do things with. And if you have been doing things that are dirty, you need to cleanse them. And your hands may only be cleansed in the blood of Jesus Christ. He can wash away your sins. He can make your hands the things you've done things with. He can make them pure. Cleanse your hands and purify your hearts. You've got to let God inside. You've got to let Him cleanse you from inside out. And all of that can be done through the blood of Jesus Christ. We can have the victory because Jesus will have the victory. So this morning, whatever the devil is trying to do in your life, resist him. Submit to God. And if this morning you need cleansing, 
Do what you need to do to get there. If you're not a Christian, you need cleansing. You need to confess the name of Jesus, turn away from sin, and be baptized in water for the remission of your sin. If you're a Christian and you've got dirty hands or a dirty heart this morning, you need cleansing. You may need to come forward and say, I've done this, this, or that. I need prayers. I need help. I need more strength. I need forgiveness. It may be something that you can take care of on your own between you and God or you and a brother or sister in Christ or you and somebody in the world that you've sinned against or sinned with. But I beg you, I beg you, don't let the sun go down today with dirty hands and a dirty heart. Please come while we stand and sing.